Hi, and welcome to episode two of Conservation Realist. I truly appreciate the kind feedback you shared with me already, and I'm very excited to share this first interview of the podcast. So I spoke with Dr. Joe Marie Acebes, also known as Joe. She's a good friend who I've gotten to know over the years through the wonderful Southeast Asia Marine Mammal Research Community, and more specifically as part of the fantastic family of marine mammal researchers working in the Philippines. She is the founder and principal investigator of Baliena.org, a nonprofit organization with a mission to support the conservation of whales, dolphins, and their natural habitats in the Philippines. They do work on research, education, and capacity building, including their work on humpback whales, which is currently the longest-running cetacean, so that's whales, dolphins, porpoises. Um, It's the longest-running cetacean research project in the country. I encourage you to check out the episode notes for a more complete biography because it is impressive, and it includes a doctorate in veterinary medicine as well as a doctorate in marine environmental history. I so enjoy and appreciate the time I get to spend with Joan at various conferences, workshops, wherever our respective travels bring us to the same place at the same time. She's really one of the folks that I particularly look forward to chatting with during, say, coffee breaks and meals out during conferences, because I know it will always be a very real and very thoughtful conversation. And that really encapsulates part of what I want to bring to this podcast, which is those side conversations at conferences that have really taught me more than the actual presentations themselves. So let's get started. Again, that is music by Somo Twin, Ziantet, and Min Min in Myanmar. And the whole song is at the end of the episode. I really love this song. And Somo Twin is actually starting a career in music, so I'm really glad I can share this song here. And again, I encourage you to check out his YouTube page. Hopefully he'll have more and more things posted up there uh, as time goes on. So here's some context before we dive into this episode. So first, we talk quite a bit about publications here. If you're not a professional in the field, perhaps that seems a bit tangential to the adventurous work of saving the world, but it's actually fairly important, um, to be honest, more important than it should be, in my opinion. But peer-reviewed publications were once described to me by a professor as currency. They are the accepted evidence of your expertise. And so when a researcher or a conservation organization is applying for funding for their work, they are often asked to provide evidence of their qualifications. So your publication record is linked in many ways to your ability to drum up money for your continued work. 
authorship in publications is a fraught issue, as many of you know all too well. It's basically who gets credit for the work done. But the publication is really a relatively small end product of a large amount of concerted effort, and it demonstrates the time and resources you have to write up and submit and revise and resubmit an article written in stuffy academic English. And these skills are really only tangential in the grand scheme of things to one's ability to conduct good research and to carry out good conservation work. Authorship is also how one gets quote-unquote famous in, con- in academic circles. And that recognition as an expert plays into the opportunities that are afforded to you and the platforms that you have access to with implications for diversity and inclusion in the field. And uh, I'll definitely be featuring conversations with more on this topic of kind of fame and, and scrambling for recognition and inclusion and diversity later in the season. Second context point, we also discuss permits for research. So if you're poking around nature for research, um, especially if it's a threatened species or in a conservation area, then you will probably need a permit for various types of activities. And yes, it can totally be a bureaucratic hassle, but it exists for a good reason to monitor activities that might have an impact on ecosystems and people. And if you're a foreign researcher, you are a guest in whatever country you're working in, and you need to follow the rules. Uh, Third point, Joan references two of our highly esteemed colleagues, Bill Perrin, a pioneer in marine mammal research, including in Southeast Asia, and Edna Sabater, one of the leading active researchers of marine mammals in the Philippines, and and someone who both of us really look up to. Sadly, Bill passed away last year. He left a huge and meaningful legacy, one that is very much felt among the research community in South and Southeast Asia. And you'll notice in Jom's references to him that he was very much a straight talker. He was definitely a no-nonsense guy. And with that, Let's dive into it. Uh, I'm always afraid I'm going to talk with someone for a while and then realize I haven't pressed record. <laughs> yeah. Um, you're actually the first interview I'm doing for this. <laughs> yes. Okay. <laughs> Although I, I, I might end up ranting more than anything. Ranting is good. And funny enough, so I called it conservation realists. And I was like, I could just call it CR for short. And I was like, no. <laughs> <laughs> Not here. It's not going to sound nice. It's not in the Philippines. I should have chosen a a different name um, had I thought about that ahead of time. Just a note, for those who are not familiar with the Philippines, CR is the acronym for Comfort Room, also known as the Toilets. You know, parachute science, it's kind of funny for me to be asking you about this in a way because I am a foreigner who's only worked in other countries. And I'm sure I've made my share of, of missteps, um, but I have such high regard for my colleagues who are working locally in their own countries and regions. Uh, so I appreciate you being willing <laughs> maybe to educate me or others a little more about your experiences with it and, and your perspectives on it. 
when when people ask me about parachute science, um, I tend to say that it's not the usual definition that I'm actually thinking of. When I say usual definition, you know how Asha DeVos has been cited for um, defining a parachute science, and I'm going to read it now. Okay. Ah, there. So, uh, like, for her, like, colonial science or parachute science is the conservation model where researchers from the developed world come to countries like mine, like Philippines, for example, do research and leave without any investment in human capacity or infrastructure. Mm. Um, I think, like, it, it doesn't exactly happen just like that because it makes it sound very simple mm. that someone comes in, yeah, like a foreign researcher would come in to the Philippines, for example, do research, and then just leave with all the data. Um, because for me, if you think of it just like that, it's more focused on like collecting specimens. That's usually what people think, at least here in the Philippines. Mm. But it's not just that. It's a lot more complicated and it has a lot more like repercussions. Okay. Um, so like, for example, um, the way I see it, it's very closely tied up to the other term colonial science. So that I think is more broad and more encompassing because that ties up to, again, something that we're more familiar with here in the Philippines, which is the idea of colonial mentality. Mm-hmm. Colonial mentalities mainly, I think this became very popular in the 80s, in the Philippines at least, during my generation. When, this is when um, someone just thinks anything foreign or American, specifically for us, is good. And if it's Filipino, it's not good. Mm. So it's like an extreme opposite. American or anything foreign, always good, nothing bad. But when it's Filipino, it's low quality. It doesn't have to be just a product, but it could be anything, like an idea. So mm-hmm. I think they're tied together that from, for example, from, yeah, if I go back to my own experience, I would say that my very first experience of parachute or colonial science was when I was involved in this um, huge collaborative project on compact whales. And of course, like being... A newbie, knowing nothing and nobody, like naturally you feel like, oh, I'm so excited. I'm working with all these big people. Um, I really like to learn about everything humpback. And so you're very much um, generous with information and data. And we ended up, basically, I ended up sharing all our data at that time, including samples, tissue samples and all that. And then in the end, finding out that during the conference that they already have results based on the samples that we got and contributed and that they were already presenting it at the conference. And mm-hmm. we didn't even know about it. So yeah. that was, I think, my first, yeah, that was my very first experience. And I didn't even realize that that could happen. So being naive and everything is like, oh, they can actually do that. Because without telling you, they'll present it. And then uh, what made it worse was that they actually found something very, very interesting. Um, 
that they didn't even share us share to us and we didn't I didn't find out until I was sitting at the conference and listening to the talk oh my gosh oh so, so and then um we published that obviously and no acknowledgement whatsoever not even actually during that time I remember that I wasn't even looking for my name I was just waiting for the recognition because at that time I was still with WWF mm-hmm. that they at least acknowledge these were from samples taken by WWF. Yeah. But there was not. Oh and God. of course, there were so many excuses given. Um, but that, I think I do give credit to the people that in the end, they did try to make amends for it. Um, but yeah, but it was a terrible experience for someone who's very new in yeah. the field. And um so I think that's like more the classic um, parachute science that literally they just without even having without even having to come to the country that it was even <laughs> because I just literally just gave them all the data and yeah oh and no God. recognition no whatsoever um yeah but that's the classic one mm-hmm. but I think my succeeding sadly there were succeeding examples of or experiences was even worse. And that I think is the one that is not normally talked about. Um, mainly because I think at least it also involves Filipinos doing the same thing to their fellow Filipinos. That's where the colonial mentality comes in. Is that fellow Filipinos would think, oh, because they're foreign, they were educated in the US or Australia or wherever then they should know better. But you're Filipino, so why should I believe you? Mm-hmm. Something like that. And then even if, yeah, like for example, even if um, there are more Filipinos studying, I don't know, Irawadi dolphins, let's say. Mm-hmm. And then someone comes in and um, just literally comes in and even writes a proposal and gets granted a proposal to work on a project on a species in your country without really involving the people who have been working on that species for many years. Um, and then in the end, they'll get all the credit for it mm-hmm. because they're the grant proponent, basically, or project proponent. Right. Um, and I guess that's not even my experience, someone else's. <laughs> but, um, but for me, for example, yeah, like, again, um, the other one is not just publications, but I guess it all boils down to that, sadly, sometimes, because they or are grant-giving institutions, at least, do look at that, like, as a back, um, you know, how when you apply for a grant and then people, uh, when you're asked, um, like, have you done any work on the species or how can you prove that you've done this work, then you have to cite your publications. So, yeah, so the most recent experience I've had is that we've, we helped a foreign researcher set up in the Philippines. Um, we did all the groundwork, basically, because they don't speak an ounce of Filipino. Mm-hmm. Uh, so we did all the groundwork, found all the boat crew People talk to all the government officials. You know how it works like here in the Philippines. You have to get permission for everything. So obviously, 
we the Filipinos did all that. We also helped conceptualize the project, how to do the surveys. And then in the end, we find out years later that they actually wrote a paper and it was about to be published. And um, we didn't find, uh, how did we, I, yeah, it was through Edna actually. So okay. <laughs> yeah, because you know how you can get notifications about a paper that peer reviewed or something or peer about to come out, right? Yeah. So it's yeah. been submitted, but hasn't been um, published yet. Mm-hmm. So someone got a notification of that. And we saw that for these authors, none of them are Filipino. And the data is exactly the same data that we collected for another project. So, yeah. And the, the main author wasn't even there at the beginning of the project. She was there towards the end, but she got a hold of all the data from the very beginning. And so that started the whole drama. Like mm-hmm. if we hadn't flagged it with the editor-in-chief. Oh, yeah. And even the editor-in-chief of the journals, which I think also plays a huge role, no? Like journals yeah. um, definitely have a huge great, uh, role to play when it comes to preventing uh, parachute science or colonial science. Yeah, they didn't even acknowledge the first email, if it wasn't for my other colleague who was Canadian, emailed same editor that he replied saying basically, oh, we can't do anything about that because we don't know about the field work. So you should contact directly the primary author. And it took weeks and it's still not resolved, mm-hmm. to be honest. But it did stop them from publishing it uh, because we flagged it. But the bad part about that is even the the main author still refuses to acknowledge that the our contribution, the Filipinos, um, is worth co-authorship. Mm-hmm. So it's just, I mean, um, she did in the end offer like, oh, if you'd like to review this paper, then we can revise and then resubmit, basically. But just the fact that she refused to acknowledge that and even apologize, to me, that's just unacceptable. Yeah. Like I, I really want her to first admit that what she did was wrong and that she has to admit that her notions of what, let me say that, constitutes co-authorship is just wrong. Because she's basically saying, oh, they just did the field work. But she wasn't even there yeah. in the beginning. So anyway. Gosh, yeah. I mean, I'm, I'm a little familiar having watched from the sidelines of this particular drama. And what definitions for co-authorship, I think there's different ways that people define it and different ways that people are trained, which is a problem because we're come, everyone's coming at it with a different understanding. So maybe I could understand a little bit of leeway there but what i really couldn't understand was absolutely not contacting any of you and it really also detracted from the quality of their work right like like filipino researchers you all have been doing amazing work in that area like i don't understand why someone would not choose to include that in their study in a more collaborative way i just yeah was so baffled and, and really shocked by that whole situation 
So yeah, so unfortunately, there's more of that that has happened. It's just nobody noticed. So unless you were actually, yeah, like I actually, when that happened, it prompted me to look back at other papers that they mm-hmm. wrote. And I found out, oh, wait, this is also the project that, that we worked on. And obviously, they didn't include us. And no Filipino listed there. And I don't believe it that they're able to do that work without a single Filipino helping. Yeah. So it's just, it's ridiculous, um, but they get away with it. And that brings me to the point that that's why the whole colonial mentality idea plays a big role there because the Filipinos allow it to happen because they think that, oh yeah, it, they did all the work. They're, they're the ones who can write in English so yeah. they should be co-authors. Uh, I mean, they, yeah. And even the permitting system. Yeah, so that was the other thing that a typical, for a typical Filipino researcher, if you're honest, <laughs> you have to go through all these steps just to get a permit to collect a specimen. Um, perfect example there is like, for example, Edna. Mm-hmm. And she, it took her years to get a permit to collect for a biopsy sample for a whale and she had to go to each municipality around the Bohol Sea to get them to approve it before it's actually submitted to the government agency. But then there's another foreign group that all they have to do is just take a sample, take it back. This is two things that they're doing illegally, taking a sample, uh, even if it's just a byproduct of and a protected species. That's one violation without a permit, I mean. And then taking it out of the country. That's illegal too. You can't just take out samples like that without um, permission. Um, but they were able to do it. And they got it published too. Oh my God. I so, see someone who, I had to get approval from Palawan Council for Sustainable De- Development and all the barangays where I, like, I went through the process. And as someone who went through that process, even though I'm not a local researcher, that irks me so much. <laughs> Just like the arrogance of, of going in and doing that, especially with samples. That's like the highest level of, of protection that, that requires those kinds of permits. I just yeah. find that so appalling. <laughs> yeah. And then, what for me, personally, what made it worse was I already notified the Bureau of Fisheries. I told them exactly what happened. And they just shrug it off. Mm-hmm. It's just like, okay, so if that was me, are you going to shrug it off? I'm sure you're not. You're mm-hmm. going to and say that, oh, what you did is illegal or whatever. But yeah. because they're foreign, um, they just like, oh, well, we'll catch them next time. <laughs> it's almost kind of like I'm sure there is a a well formulated term for this, but like internalized colonial viewpoint that privileges what external actors, certain external actors do and and, and their skills. So it's not it's not entirely the foreigners' fault. <laughs> it's partly because I have to give benefit of the doubt to some who may not know that those are the rules. But that would be the responsibility of whoever is leading them or took them on on the project to tell them what the 
laws are in the country. Um, you know, I bet I bet they wouldn't try to do that if they were if it was like Americans doing work in Europe, for example, or Australia, right? Right. Yeah. Right. Um, so I think it's interesting. I like how you started with kind of a more simple definition of parachute science. It's the way it's written there. It's like an isolated occurrence. Like mm -hmm. the researcher comes in, collects stuff, goes out gets recognition for their work but really as you know as you've experienced it it's it's not isolated you know it's intertwined with local researchers local organizations who are working extremely hard and doing good work and it affects you and your colleagues there negatively uh, in so many ways so it, it's not like this abstract victimless act it is really um taking away from, from people who are on the ground and really dedicating their careers, their lives to this work. Yeah, and then, sorry, I forgot to mention, mm -hmm. like taking over, I think is, for me, that's like, those are the key words. Like they basically, it's the taking over of a project of something that's already been started by a local and it's like almost deceiving at the beginning that it sounds great that, oh, we'd like to collaborate with you, but in the end, we're going to take over the project and mm -hmm. you'll be forgotten, literally. And it's going to be our project, something that we did. Um, and it's just, it's just bullshit. <laughs> <laughs> and they get to be you know, like the intrepid explorers going to a different country and yeah, exactly. saving, saving nature there. Yeah. And I also want to add that because you know Philippines is one of the most dangerous countries for people doing environmental work, especially you know, the risk is much higher, as my understanding, for local researchers yes. and activists. So it ha has that added element. Like these researchers and activists are putting so much on the line and to be disrespected like that is, you know, is adding insult to injury. That's not the right turn or phrase, but you know what I mean? <laughs> yeah, I know. And, and yeah, like that whole taking over, I experienced that. Like I realized how powerful their words are against yours. Mm. Um, that people, I mean, it's going to sound like I'm being arrogant or waiting for recognition, but it's just like the fact that it just makes it sound like they did that work and started all the work. And who are you? Like, basically, it's like that without having to say that. Yeah. And it's, and this is in the international front. Like, locals might know what you've done, um, but when you go out there, the only names they've heard are the names of the foreign researcher. Um, it's like, Oh, you did work on that? Really? I thought it was this group. Oh. So it's like, okay. <laughs> so yeah. it's just, it's messed up, to be honest. Um, yeah, <laughs> to say the least. Do you have any thoughts on, on why this happens? You know, like, it, do you think it's just ignorance, like a lack of mindfulness on the part of these foreign researchers? Um. That's a good question. I think for some, or maybe, no, it's hard to generalize, I guess, mm -hmm. but um, 
like for example for my earlier experience i think it's mainly ignorance they they didn't know one that it was that important although bill would disagree <laughs> but um they didn't realize it was that important to recognize you mm. or they thought it was valid to say that oh we already have like a hundred co-authors um we couldn't include you anymore but yeah according to bill that's bullshit <laughs> um, <laughs> um but also ah yeah like for example like not informing you about the result mm. Um, maybe, okay, maybe there was a lapse there that, okay, they really did forget to email you to let you know that, oh, by the way, we're presenting this, and it's really cool, and we're going to present it at the SMM conference. Maybe. Mm. But for others, um, hmm. it's hard to say, but I'm judging them, yes. <laughs> um <laughs> Because I, I can't think of a reason why they would do it. And I, I, it still makes me wonder why they did it. Like the whole taking over, for example, not giving you credit and refusing to acknowledge any involvement. Um, it's just, yeah, unfortunately, I can't explain it. Maybe, yeah. I, yeah, I can't even say maybe anymore. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Um... And how does it feel like for you? I mean, I, I obviously you're, you're voicing a lot of frustration at, at kind of this this disrespect and lack of acknowledgement. But like more personally, how does it feel to you whenever this happens to you or one of your close friends and colleagues? Yeah, well, first, it's very exhausting. Mm -hmm. <laughs> it's exhausting because it's like it just keeps happening. Um, it It's. I guess now that I'm older, <laughs> um, I'm more like trying to make sure that they don't get away with it when they're doing it to someone else. Mm -hmm. um, but at the same time, yeah, it's it's really exhausting because it takes a lot of energy. Like even just having to flag it with the editors or even just asking people involved in the project that didn't involve a local, like, it's not my responsibility anymore, but still, I feel like I should do something about it. Um, because if you don't, they probably like the the younger people, the younger the younger Filipinos might not even know that oh that they should actually fight for it. Yeah. And yeah, so generally, it's that it's it's exhausting and frustrating, and at the same time. It does make you angry <laughs> at some point, um, mainly because because we all know that getting recognition for any project or any work or any publication that you do, it all boils down to getting funding, yeah. which is already very um, competitive to get funding. So to add that as another obstacle is just yeah, it's just too much already. And like, as you said, like we, we do face other challenges on the ground, politically, socially, and all of this. So to add that to having to deal with, it's just not, yeah, it interferes with the real work, really. Yeah. 
Well, yeah, I mean, a lot of you are, you know, running organizations on a shoestring. You're not you're not based at universities with with high salaries. And I'm not saying that's the only source of parachute science. I know that's not true, but um, that kind of discrepancy between the safety net, the financial safety net of who's doing the parachute science and, and who are the local scientists who are suffering because of it, uh, I think makes the problem even that much more um, Sorry, it's it's too late at night for me to think the words, but it makes it that much more problematic to me. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, and you know, I often I when I've been guiding young researchers in Myanmar, I feel like I've been almost paranoid at times. Like when you're emailing someone with an idea, CC someone else, like a neutral third party, who's you know, like I feel like I'm training them to be paranoid and sometimes I have to take a step back and like, am I just teaching them that everyone's out to steal their ideas? But it's it's with good reason, right? You know, like I want them to get credit for the work that they are doing for their ideas. I don't want them to be taken advantage of, whether it's through ignorance and, and or more blatant disrespect. Uh, and so listening to your experiences kind of makes me feel, all right, I wasn't being too extreme in what I've been instructing them to do. Yeah, it's true. I mean, I feel the same way now, like I'm having experienced all of that. Like when someone else comes up to me, like a younger researcher, I just say, you should have a signed agreement. Yeah. Before you get involved in this project, you have to have a signed agreement, clearly state who gets to do what, what credit is given to, because you'll never know. Like. You'll be lucky if you always deal with like honest, great people, but there are unfortunately bad people out there. <laughs> exactly, exactly. Um, so my next question, you can feel free to tell to, to tell me to skip it because it is asking you for suggestions when really the burden should be on foreigners to think about this deeply. But what are some things you think that foreign researchers could do better to avoid being parachuters? Um, I guess I make it sound like it's, it's like common sense, right? Mm. Because I feel like if I were to go, it's never going to happen. But if I were to go to, for example, a different country, like, let's say Australia, before I go, and I can't, right? So I can't just go and start something without finding out first, who's doing the work on what, what permissions do I, ne I need to, to be able to do anything? So basically, it's just doing your homework before you even start planning to do any project outside of your own country and assuming that you know how it works because you probably don't. So get contacts, like good contacts locally and find out, be honest, first of all, I guess, I should say, be honest on what your intentions are. Um, if you're looking for a project as a student or whatnot, um, say what you intend to do and then find out if there's room for any collaboration. And yeah, just basically just be honest on what your intentions are and be very open to uh, what the locals are saying and do not take credit for something that you didn't. <laughs> I think yeah. it's, it's 
but yeah. Yeah, and I think <clears throat> I think humility is a big part of that too. You know, just just because a country is cheaper than the country you live in, maybe enforcement of their rules is more lax, it doesn't mean that it's your playground. Yes. And yeah, and also, yeah, that was actually one thing um, that I also forgot to mention that I think some researchers have a notion of, like, for example, Philippines is also known for corruption, right? Mm -hmm. So there is that notion that everyone is corrupt, so why bother follow the rules and two that i heard this and it's true it's been said that oh filipino researchers can't write and so they never write up they do all the field work but they don't write up a report or publish and that really makes me very upset because first they don't know like the working conditions that we're in, like for whether you're in the academe or you're you work in for NGOs, that unlike the setup in academia in the US or Australia or even in NGOs, we don't get paid to do research and to write it up. Mm -hmm. uh, especially if you're teaching, in most cases, for you to be able to do any field work. That's like rare. If you have a huge funding for a project tied up to your university, then you're lucky. Then you actually have time to do the fieldwork and write up. But still, that is not your priority and you have other work to do. That is the main reason why a lot of the fieldwork that has been done and if they must have submitted the report because they have to submit the report. But whether that's going to be published or not, there's so many other obstacles when it comes to publishing. And that should never be made as a gauge of how well you do your work, because unfortunately, it's not that way here in the Philippines. Like, mm -hmm. Publishing is a luxury, honestly. So yeah, nobody has uh, enough time or the money, because in most cases, you have to pay right, to be able to publish. So yeah, but I've heard that, that we've been told that, that oh, Filipinos can't write. They do all the field work but can't publish. That's so insulting and such a lazy excuse because even if it were true, which I know it's not, even if it were true, the response would be, let's invest in supporting skills for writing, you know? Yeah. Um, so it's, it's kind of, a, I hear that kind of lazy excuse a lot when it comes to increasing diversity and inclusion in the field, mm -hmm. right? It's just like, well, things are this way. So we'll just, continue the way we're going instead of let's investigate how to systemically change the barriers to true diversity and inclusion. So my last question on the topic of parachute science is, um, what do you think at a systemic level needs to change to help reduce it? You've touched on some of these points, maybe more accountability from journals, um, any other things you've thought about? What, yeah, that's one. No, like I, I know it's harder, I think, because even though I forgot now the name for it, there is one, right, that there's already sort of like guidelines on, on authorship. I forgot the term, but Elsevier or Science Direct came out with something like that, written, okay. like clear guidelines on how 
authorship should be defined, etc. But it's because it's those are just guidelines and it still depends on the journals, right, to follow them. That's one. But what I've been thinking, I don't know, I should we should ask someone from Indonesia, but I I've been thinking for a long time that I wish the Philippines was a lot more strict like Indonesia. Like for example, Indonesia, you need a research permit, right? To even enter the country. And when you're doing your PhD thesis or whatever, you have to present and you have to partner with the local NGO. They have to give a go signal to your project proposal before you're even given a research visa. And I've heard of someone who was actually um, banned or like visa was revoked because I can't remember what the what he did, but basically he did something wrong. And his visa was actually revoked that he could never go back to Indonesia. Oh, wow. And I was thinking, I wish the Philippines would like that because that's one way um, to limit these kinds of people who would just come in and then leave and without involving locals and without authorities knowing what they're actually doing. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, I wish, I think that's a huge step. And I think it's, it will make it make parachute science a lot less of a problem. Mm-hmm. As, as someone who went through the Indonesia process, it was, I feel like it's streamlined since then because this is 10 years ago. It was like a scavenger hunt. <laughs> oh, it, really? Yeah, but it was good. It was, it was a lot, but it was clearly outlined. I had really great local collaborators who helped me a lot. And then once it was done, it was done. I could do my work. Uh, so it was, it was a lot, but it was reasonable. It really, um, I tried to be mindful about this anyways, but I can see how it would really prompt someone to be very mindful about, you know, you have to share your data, report back. Um, So yeah, I'm with you. (laughs) (laughs) You just need to get a politician to pass this law. (laughs) Yeah. Good luck with that. (laughs) But I hope it happens. (laughs) Yeah. Um, Do you feel like this, kind of internalized colonial viewpoint is maybe changing with younger generations of researchers and conservationists? I think it, I think it has been changing. Um, unfortunately, like in marine mammal science, there's very few younger mm-hmm. people, which is sad. I really hope that will change soon. Um, so yeah, but I think, well, the younger generation definitely are a lot more confident about their work, which is good. Um, because I think that also has a uh, has a role to play when if you're confident that you're doing the right thing, then you're more confident to say, wait a minute, like this is my work, um, I should get credit for it. Mm-hmm. So in a way, yeah, the new generation, I think, has advantage when it comes to that. So I guess you can be hopeful mm-hmm. that there will be less parachute science now. And there are also more recognition for for Filipino work that has been done, so. That's good, that's good to hear. Um, All right, thank you for, for, I learned a lot, Joan, thank you. So there we have it, another excellent conversation with Joan 
made even better because I'm able to share it with you. We actually continued our conversation, but that's for a future episode. Uh, As a sneak peek, it relates to what I call the human collateral damage of conservation. I also want to mention that Joan generously was a guest on my brother's podcast, The Ocean and Us, um, about a year and a half ago. So uh, I really appreciate her generosity with with her time and her insights. Um, For now, you can follow Joan's work via Bellyanna.org's Instagram and Facebook page. And stay tuned for next week, where I chat with marketing expert Brooke Tully on how conservation marketing campaigns can be conducted more respectfully, responsibly, and effectively. Uh, This was a lot of new information to me, and uh, I hope you'll find it interesting and informative too. As a reminder, um, any kind of feedback, especially the discussion or comment section on Substack would be really welcomed and appreciated. Any likes and shares, um, any kind of reviews, also very appreciated. And again, if you have the means to do so uh, and feel so moved, uh, you can donate. The, the link to my coffee account is on the Substack page. And that's just to support me continuing to do this work, which is very much an unfunded side project. And with that, thank you all for your attention. I look forward to hearing from you and um, I'll be back next week. ดุกบาจีเยสิงขอดันเวนาสวนเลยลูดาโรอาลอกยอชวนสยาเรเปสวนเนตุปยองเวอาผุสินโลเลยเซลันเนลาปาจีเยกงโกซองเนตุลาเ
abane Menga salo dotu ga gwenai bare Bawonchen la palaboye la la lokumale the bawaye myo sata pavole the bawaye tayare ตุ๊ดเต้ยเต้ยจ้าโซนากันมาเลยเมยเอ็นเวทเวเจโนเดลีบ่าวอนเจนลาปาลาโบเยละลันโลกูบาเลบ่าวายเอ็นยูสะต